0: The Over the Bonnet Podcast is brought to you by Mary Mark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is a former diesel fitter who ventured into the world of infrared thermal imaging photography designed to increase cost savings to mining companies through better preventative maintenance. Also, as a multiple Australian boxing champion, Jeff Erickson has turned the infrared technology on himself and others to document study into a neurological rehabilitation treatment known as neurophysics. And I'm pleased to have him into the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. No, you're kidding me, aren't you? Jeff Erickson, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks for having me, Mark. We've been great mates for a long time, and you're now moving into something that I don't know a lot about, and I'd like to talk to you about it today, and that's neurophysics. Tell us all about it.
1: It's a rehabilitation of the nervous system. Uh, It was developed by a man called Ken Ware, formerly of Mackay, and it's based around some very, very heavy scientific principles, but the beauty of what he's done is he's broken it down to some very simple principles by which our system behaves. And um, they're based around six pillars that are responsible for how our system behaves and responds to its environment. Can you explain more? Yeah, sure, if we start off with, I guess, the first three pillars, which are posture, emotions and environment and in particular the first one which is posture yeah (laughs) and uh, (laughs) whenever I speak about posture you see everybody adjusting themselves because intuitively we know right that we should have good posture and that's really funny that you did that because it's what everyone does when we start talking about posture and that comes from uh, intuition that we know that if you have good posture and you're sitting or standing upright then you're healthy okay and if we if we saw someone walking down the street who was exhibiting good posture chin up chest out and strolling along quite relaxed we'd we'd say well that guy looks like he's happy and healthy and conversely if we saw someone walking down the street with their chest depressed and shoulders rolled forward we'd intuitively look at them and say he doesn't look too happy uh but what I like about what Ken's done in the in the realm of posture, and there's a lot of research to back this up, by the way, so it's not just him on his own, is that he's related that to information processing. And if you take that as a step further, when you're in a, a nice postural state, then you can imagine that we're actually processing a lot about our environment. Okay, And if we take that through an evolutionary uh phase back in the day when we were wandering around the jungle if you and I were wandering through the jungle and we were talking and then I thought I thought I saw something up ahead that was possibly dangerous like a snake or a tiger or something then intuitively I would elevate my posture and try and look ahead and see if that was in fact something that was going to be dangerous to me so I wouldn't sort of be crouching down like this and so we know that if we want to process more more information about our environment, then we elevate our posture. Um, And what that means to the health of the system is, the system is able to uh, process information about its environment, whereas people who are exhibiting poor posture are pretty much only processing enough information to survive or to carry out their task or whatever it is they're doing in their day-to-day life. So that's the that's one of the most fundamental things about neurophysics I've enjoyed.
0: So how does it work though? When you're actually doing the actual treatment, what goes on? Okay, so if we can conv- combine the
1: the first pillar with the next two important or most important pillars, which are uh, environment and emotions, um, when we are taking someone into therapy, and this is the other amazing thing that Ken's done, he's taken ordinary weights machines and turn them into very specific therapeutic devices. And the reason why he's been able to do this is because he's understood that those weights machines are just a piece of metal, but they are a way of introducing sensory input. And the second thing he's done in relation to information processing is he's understood that moving that very, very light weight very, very slowly allows the person to feel and allows the trained therapist to see what sort of responses that information processing is producing from within that person's system. So if we think about the weight, whatever it may be, and usually it's very, very light, it is non-threatening. And uh, if it's done very slowly, it's certainly not dangerous. So if we are receiving a response from that sensory input or if we're seeing a response in the patient, then that tells us how that syst- that system and that person responds to their everyday environment.
0: What's the correlation here? You're talking about a response. When you
1: uh, are moving the weight slowly, so anybody, if I was to jump on, a, a say, a leg press, and it wouldn't matter whether the leg press is here or in London or in Brazil, a leg press is a leg press. So the system, knows what a leg press is once it's introduced to the leg press if you don't know what it is once before and then as you move the weight down very very slowly you'll often see some kind of muscular reaction so shaking um in its most mild cases you know can evolve into a i guess a, a, a large tremor in um in other cases but the point is it it is a response and based on how much weight or sensory input there is, that response is, is often um, an unnecessary response or an overreaction to that amount of weight. And yet it's experienced in everybody that comes along and, and engages in that type of movement. So Ken and his team have developed uh, this method of being able to visually uh, see those responses, correlate them to what the patient is feeling and then teaching them uh, using goals and cues to deal with that response in a really calm comfortable manner uh, which they wouldn't have done before. We all store stress from the amount of information that we process about our environment. In our day-to-day world it's, it's bigger and faster than it's ever been and unfortunately our nervous system has not uh, evolved fast enough to deal with the amount of information that we're processing. So a simplified version is that when we experience an overload of information, uh, we often tighten up in areas that are related to our fight-flight response. So our trapezius up here, our chest, our abdomen, we hold our breath, and even our adductors. So by teaching the system to relax in those areas, no matter what the input is, you're teaching your system to deal with stress coming in from its environment. And then what you get out of that is an ability to stay calm most of the time under various inputs of stress from the real world. So that's the that's the real game changer for the everyday person. Tell us about Ken Ware that's developed this system. Yeah, so Ken Ware, as I mentioned before, is from Mackay where I grew up and I'd come across Ken quite a few times um, and he was an ex-Mr Universe in, in the 80s and he, be, he went on to become a an Australian powerlifting champion uh, right into his 40s. So he, he pretty much practises what he preaches. Uh, but what I believe Ken's story is, and I hope I've got it 100% right here, is that in the 1980s when he was training for Mr Universe in Western Australia, he was um, struggling a bit and lifting a lot of heavy weights and and was in a fair bit of pain because of that. And then he noticed some older English guys training and they were lifting some incredibly heavy, heavy weights doing it very slowly and in a very composed manner so when he went over to speak to them they said to him look your your technique's terrible and you're trying to lift too much and if you keep that up you you're not going to have much of a long career and you're going to suffer for it uh, for a long time so the best advice we can give you is to go home take all the weight off practice your technique start again and then build up from there and when he did that he experienced uh, what is now known as the wear k tremor. And that was the nervous system responding to the amount of stress that he'd stored within there because obviously the weight was very, very slow, uh, very, very light, and he was performing the exercise very, very slowly. So the weight had nothing to do with it, and the speed and what was stored in his system and its response had everything to do with it. So he spent the next 30 years or so developing that into a system that was repeatable and was able to be um, reproduced for every person. And an amazing amount of science and research has gone behind that um, 30 years before anyone would actually even talk to him about it. And now he's got quite a uh, well-known presence in the the area of, of rehabilitation from spinal cord injuries
0: and brain injuries. So you've got an athletic background yourself. How did you incorporate the neurophysics and get introduced to it in the first place?
1: Yeah, so it was actually from rehabilitation. I, uh, there were two things going on in my life at the time, and they were, they were fairly significant. The first one was that I'd um, torn the bicep off my bone in, a, in an accident when I was helping uh, finish off my house. And the second thing was I was I was going through a bit of a, a tough time mentally, uh, through a breakdown of my business. And uh, when I was doing some rehabilitation in the gym, I was introduced to this uh, therapy from one of the personal trainers at the gym who knew that I was I was open minded. I've tried a, a whole heap of different things in my life, and so I rang Ken and asked him if he would mind if I came out and and did a bit of training with him and had a look at what he was doing. And he was. More than willing he remembered who I was from our interactions um, years ago and and out I went and uh, yeah what I observed was
0: was quite mind blowing what was so groundbreaking that that made you look
1: yeah well more than what I observed, I guess more importantly was what I what I felt um, during the process and it's something that anybody who's been through his process struggles to um, to really explain because it is such an experiential technique. Um, But the long and the short of it for me was I went out there, you know, very tired, very stressed, you know, very upset um, and spent a few days with him and then honestly felt like I'd left there feeling 10 years younger. And then I realised that basically like anything in, in life, if you want to improve, you've still got to do the work, regardless of how good whatever it is you've been introduced to you've got to do the work to make it stick. So I did the
0: work and I'm making it stick. You've had a great work ethic over your time because uh, when we first met, it was in the uh, amateur boxing ranks. Tell us about your boxing career. Yeah, well, that career started in the late 1980s,
1: 1987, in fact, when I was 13 years old. And uh, it progressed on and off over the years until I was about uh, 32 or something. So. My last fight was in 2004, and it was amateur, out all amateur. Um, but I accumulated 70 odd fights over that period, which, you know, I guess in the scheme of things in the world, is not a lot of fights. But for an Australian boxer, it's a reasonable number of fights. But uh, I enjoyed my time as a boxer tremendously. I learnt a hell of a lot about myself in that time, and that's pretty much, you know, what
0: has set me up. For most of the good things and some of the bad things in the rest of my life. Talk about the success. I know it's something that you don't like to sort of dwell too much on these days, but it's a pretty important uh, part of your makeup. Oh, absolutely,
1: yeah. And I, I guess I'm—I don't talk about it a lot because I don't feel like it has to define me.
0: Did um, it? No, but it made me who I was. But when you were younger, did you find did you find that it defined who you were that or at least other people tried to put a label on you because of who you were. Absolutely. I mean I let it define me
1: because it was me for a long time. Um, but I think like all things and, and yes I did get labels put on me and, and, and um, I guess that's all part of the journey right And then at one some stage in your life, you know you've got to realize that if you want to keep on living then you must move past whatever it was, That you thought you were before um and you know going back to that journey I guess for you
0: know
1: eight or nine years boxing was everything in my life you know so I started off as a junior as you said and I I'd had a few fights and then I won half of those out of four two out of four and I thought this isn't very good even as a 14 year old I didn't like that you know, so I thought I'm gonna go back to the gym and, and train a little bit harder and, and fix a thing, few things up and get a little bit stronger and then I came back when I was about 16 and that year I managed to progress through the Queensland and into the Australian titles which I won, so that was a great start. And then the next year following I, I won the Australian senior title and, and the year after that and then in the following year I actually got stopped um, in in my Australian titles finals fight. and so that was a big wake-up call because that had never happened before. Um, and and then I suffered a hand injury earlier the next year and that put me out for another six months and and then I went mapped back and I and I lost to the same guy, but fortunately i I stayed on my feet this time and was able to complete the fight. so that was good. Um, it's funny because, I remember that that night, and uh, this guy could hit really hard, and he was really sharp. And so, the first round, he caught me a couple of times, and I was I stayed on my feet, and I started to come back, but didn't do enough, I guess, to win the whole fight. But I was actually very happy that I was able to do that, you know. And then the following year, I think I won, and then I had a few years off. Uh, in boxing and went around working around Australia in the mining industry um, where I didn't really train a lot and uh, probably drank a little bit too much and had a little bit of fun, which was which was great, thoroughly enjoyed it. And then when the Olympic Games was announced to be in, in Australia, I thought, well, if I'm going to have a try at that, now's the time. And uh, I ended up moving to Perth in early... Uh, 1998, so I think I moved to Perth in about February, March, and the Australian titles were in November, so I didn't have a lot of time, and I wasn't in, you know, definitely not in uh, fighting shape, so it was a pretty tough year, Um, I pretty much funded myself and trained three times a day, most of the days during the week, Um, and I was also really intent on changing my style and becoming a better boxer, which I focused more on. So it was a lot of changes for me, but it ended up with a success at the end of the year and winning the Australian title, which was, which was really good.
0: How do you feel though, when you're um, defined as the Australian champion? Do you think it's something that you, or was it something that you worked hard to get away from?
1: Yes, yes. I, as you get older, I mean, it was great when you were, you know, when I was young and boxing, and you know, we've all got a bit of a bigger ego than we probably should have um, but it was really interesting at that period in time what I was really interested was in be- was in becoming a really nice proficient technical boxer so I'd already uh, over the few years break done a bit of work to leave that part of it behind as far as um, I wasn't sort of too worried about what anyone thought of how tough I was or you know how rough a fighter I was, which is what, what the first fifty-something fights of my career was about. It was just about out toughing and out um, out toughing and out puffing everybody, being fitter than everyone or tougher than everyone, and winning that way. And so, I'd already made part of that transition coming into uh, the 1998 fights, and uh, I was more about becoming a really, really proficient boxer, which is what I wanted to be, and I felt that I achieved that. But in doing that, I also felt that I probably wasn't um, as fit and as tough as I needed to be to to make it to that international level. And and subsequently, I didn't. But uh, am I happy about the whole journey? Absolutely,
0: yeah. So what did you change when you went to become a more efficient boxer and a a better boxer? What did you do that was different from, say, the first 50 fights?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I had a different trainer. And he was very technically focused, which is what I actually really enjoyed from the first time I watched him train people. Um, so it suited the direction that I wanted to go in. And then what I did, so my average day of training in, um, in Perth was wake up at five in the morning and the gym was only you know a couple of kilometers up the road. So regardless of whether it was zero degrees or 40 degrees, I was in the gym at 6 a.m and I would do 15 rounds of technique only. Um, so that was something I never did before. And then I would have a lunchtime run or a swim or something, so I'd do 5Ks or run Jacob's Ladder or, or swim a couple of Ks in the pool, and that was my lunchtime workout. And then I would do my standard boxing workout in the evening, which you know could involve pad work, bag work, and, and sparring and, and what have you. So I guess the real difference was the 15 rounds of technique every day that I did. That made the difference.
0: So when you were doing that, and you were just doing technique, you say you weren't as fit, but you came from a real fitness-oriented training regime, where you were trained by your dad. And do you do you think you should have kept that that regime up in in a way? Yeah, to a certain extent. So.
1: What, if I look back now and knowing what I know now about the nervous system and overtraining, I was I spent most of my time in those first years overtrained, um, and I don't know if you remember, but if a cold went by me, I caught it, you know. So my immune system was down, and I know you struggled with a lot of that at times as well through your training periods, because we were always just training so hard, you know. Um, whereas in Perth, I probably didn't train as hard. I got a bit. I remember getting a bit crooked there in. In the, in the winter um, and having to back off a bit. But um, overall, I was probably a little bit underdone. So it would have been great to have the balance of both. So if I could have asked for anything, I would have had both of those trainers training me at the same time. And I think that would have been almost the balance. Because your dad didn't want you to train and he didn't want you to box. Not initially, no, no. he. Um, I mean, it's a tough sport and, uh, you know. It's an honest sport though. Incredibly, incredibly honest, yeah. And, uh, you know, my first boxing lesson was a bit of a touch up from my father, but not a, not in reality, looking back. But it was certainly a wake up call when he brought home the gloves after, after me nagging him for months and months after I'd turned 13. And then we did a little sparring session and every time I walked in, I walked into one. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that resulted in a few tears, and him pulling me aside, saying, "Listen, mate, this is a, this is a tough sport. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll train you, but it isn't fun. It isn't what you think it is. It isn't what a movie is. It's you got to work hard, and you're going to have people you don't even know punching the, punching you in the face on a, on a daily basis as part of this journey. So, do you really want to do it?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely, but I just want to do it better." And your brother followed in your footsteps as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Stephen was a was a very capable athlete, too capable for my liking. He was good at everything, and uh, he was the same with boxing. He, we actually, um, you know, w- weren't sure whether Stephen would like boxing, but he was just absolutely as natural at boxing as he was with soccer and tennis and football and basketball and whatever he whatever else he chose to do. Um, and I've always said he was far more talented than I was.
0: He just didn't train. At it for as long as I did. How successful did you get in in the uh, in the pursuit of the Sydney Olympics? So I ended up
1: in the Australian team as as I won the Australian title, and then I went away to the Institute of Sport to prepare for the Oceania Games, which were held in Tahiti, and that was the final leg to get to the Olympic Games, and unfortunately I lost in my first fight to the guy who eventually won it, a Samoan. Um, And so I ended up with a bronze medal and I didn't end up um, going any further in my pursuit of the Olympic Games. But am I happy with it? Absolutely, yep. Do you
0: have any regrets?
1: No, I don't actually. I look back and I think um, I learnt an incredible amount. I learnt two different ways of doing the one thing, which most people don't in their life, particularly when it comes to fighting sports and you know as well as I do. A lot of people, they learn one way and that's the only way, and they do that for their whole life. And I'm not taking uh, that away from anybody, but I was really happy that I was actually able to completely change my technique and become a really nice boxer, or I felt that I was a nice boxer. So it really matters to me little what anyone else thinks. I'm really happy with, with what I
0: achieved and how I went. Thoughts of going pro? Were they uh, after you'd made the Oceania titles? No, actually the, the thoughts of going pro
1: was when I was a young uh, younger guy in, when I was 17 18 um, when I was going to do my trade that was the toss-up between you know maybe moving away and, and turning professional staying home and, and ter- uh, staying home and, and doing a trade so no I, I was I was definitely um, at the time of the oceana games I was definitely. Um, I'd felt that that was it okay I tried and I'm happy with my effort I could have done things a few bit better but I'm really happy overall so it's time to get on with life and I had a
0: a passion for travel which I pursued for quite a number of years after that. You had the choice to become a professional boxer or get a trade what happened then?
1: Yeah so dad was always big on on getting a trade and uh, I'm forever grateful for that because he said to me, okay, well, you can you can go and become or try professional boxing if you want now, and you might try that for a few years, and if it doesn't work out, um, then what are you gonna do? You need a trade to fall back on. And he, he remember that he was very anti-turning professional. Um, and so we agreed that I would do my trade first, and then I would still be young enough to turn professional if I wanted to. Um, so I, I did my trade and, and in the time of those years, the year that I injured my hand, um, I actually went down to Sydney and trained with Johnny Lewis and that was at the time and he was training Costa Zoo and he had a lot of good fighters in his stable there. So I was able to go down as a young country amateur boxer and, and train with and observe some of the countries and the world's best professional boxers.
0: What was the thing that stood out to you when you were down there?
1: One of the things my father said to me before I left, which is one of his, you know, little geniuses of of wisdom that he left me with, was he said, um, "Listen, son, you're you're going to go down and train with all of these big name people that you see on TV and that you admire so much, um, and it's easy going to be easy to get swept up in all that. But remember that at the moment you're an amateur boxer and you can enjoy any time off that you want you." um are earning money from a good job and so you 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 can have you have a lot of luxuries as far as that goes these guys that you're going to watch that's their job that's what they do every day and if they don't do it then they won't succeed and they probably won't feed their family so they're in a and they probably work another job as well so they don't just do it as a profession but they've got to work a job until they get to the to the heights that they need to be so I, I really did go down there with that lens, looking through that lens. And, you know, while it was all very exciting, I, I did stand back and think, yeah, you know what? I don't think this is for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you look at uh, someone as good as Kostya Was he as good as they say he was when you got to see him in person?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I tell this story a lot, I, I went down there and I was considered myself to be super fit. Um, I was you know running 10 kilometers well under 40 minutes. You know, I could remember doing a thousand sit- ups straight and someone timing me and I did it in 34 minutes and you know I was swimming and running and, and, and sparring 10 to 12 rounds, uh, a lot of training sessions, so I thought I was fit. And then one day uh, Johnny Lewis said, "Why don't you go up with Costa and do a, a leg workout today?" And that lasted for an hour and I couldn't walk properly for three days later. <laughs> and I was actually blown away that I, you know, not, not blown away that he was that fit, but I was blown away that I couldn't keep up and I thought I was fit. You know, I was cramping and, and it was next level obviously. Um, so obviously training wise, when you're a, an amateur boxer, you're an amateur. And you don't realize the gap between professional boxers and amateur boxers just like most people on the street don't realize the gap between an per- average person on the street is not trained in an amateur boxer so I well and truly realized that gap um, and there was a I can't remember his name but there was a New Zealand professional training there and I sparred with him and basically I felt like I was standing still.
0: <laughs> I remember the first time I was hit by an Australian uh, professional middleweight a fella called Steve Peel yep. and I got hit by Steve with a body shot and I thought, sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> and Absolutely. everyone was a sledgehammer. Absolutely. Tim Zoo is now stepping up into the spotlight and trying to step out of his father's shadow. How good do you think he can go?
1: Oh, I think he's amazing. I mean, I watched that fight the other night and, you know, he's just so composed. He's got, a, obviously, a lot of, of his father's composure in him. But, you know... I think everyone has been very hard on him because of his father's uh you know legacy and they're not really seeing who he who he is and who he could be you know um australia is producing an amazing uh, group of young boxers at the moment and he's certainly at the top of it and i think he's got uh, an amazing future ahead of him and i look I look forward to seeing him, and I certainly don't feel like I have the ability to critique him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've got a little bit of ability. Now, when you're talking about you went two types of training, you went hard and you went soft, what brought about the soft, and where did that all come from? In the gap <clears throat> years that I had there, I,
1: I sort of realised, and there was actually one telling fight, and I'm not sure if you were there, but when I fought the New Zealand champion, Greg Bell, Uh, He came to Mackay and we fought. And Greg um, was an excellent boxer and he was quite a bit taller than me. And that night, I certainly received some type of schooling. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I fought very hard. And once again, I'm very proud of how I fought. I didn't give up and I fought very, very hard and we're actually friends to this day. And and through my business, I traveled to New Zealand pre-COVID and catch up with him regularly, and we always laugh because it was a, big, it was a hard fight for both of us. Um, but what I took away from those last few years there was that I, I certainly needed to change if I was gonna become any better. And when you get that time off, when you're in it, you don't really get the time to sit back and review. But that few years I, I, I took off and I spent time training lightly And I guess I just realized what I wanted to be, and that was to be a really good technical boxer. And then I I felt that I needed to be that if I was gonna become any better.
0: So that was the driver. So looking at the relaxation side of things as opposed to the hardness? Yeah, looking at how to perform and stay relaxed. And it's something that
1: I didn't crack really in my career. The last time I fought an Australian title was in 2003 and I wasn't actually training for it. I went there as a trainer. uh, And long story short, I was right into meditation then, so before the fight, because I knew I wasn't fit and I knew that I had to stay relaxed, otherwise it would blow out too quick. I actually meditated before the fight. And believe it or not, it's one of the best performances I've, I've had in the ability to mix the soft and the hard stay the right amount of relaxed and still perform well. Um, so that w- that that last period when I was training was, um, was certainly where I started to gel it all together and I started to realise what I was missing, but it was too late.
0: So where did you learn from? The samurai you've told me at different times, so that, what did you learn from that ancient martial art?
1: Yeah, I, we spoke about that a little bit and I, I I did a lot of research between 2000 and 2002, three, and four, um, where I was just trying to understand from martial arts, from people who fought to the death, like the samurai, how they prepared, what they did you know, best. And what I read a lot about was that they meditated a lot and they, their, their aim was to stay calm during the fight not to pump themselves up, which is exactly the opposite uh, to what I did. So before I used to get into a fight, I used to hype myself up so that I could um, deal with my nerves and overcome my fears and and jump in that ring and fight hard. And so when I you know did all this research, and, and this later on translated so well through Ken Ware, was that we need to be able to stay calm under that pressure. And I looked at those beautiful boxes in history like Muhammad Ali, um, Prince Nassim and H- uh, Hamed, you know, Kostya Zhu, um, and the Russian who I still can't remember. <laughs> Terrible. Um, anyway. Or oh, Vasily. Lomachenko. Yeah, My goodness. That's him. That's taken me a long time to remember. <laughs> Beautiful, right? And so relaxed and calm and focused, you know. And so they're living proof that um, that you don't have to pump yourself up to to go into that ring you, you can stay deadly calm and still perform beautifully
0: and obviously a better way to equip yourself when you are under under pressure absolutely in everything
1: right the calmer you can stay you know it's what I tell to my, my kids the worst thing you can do in any situation is panic and the calmer you can stay the better you can deal with it the, the, the more um, composed you are and the more you will see the situation for what it is rather than um, overly emotionally reacting to it. Tell us about the meditation. Yeah, in about 2002 when I was living in London um, I'd, I'd read a fair bit about meditation already and you know I'd, I'd read a heap of books about spirituality and what have you so I was, I was kind of looking to that, uh, to that inner path rather than the outer path which is what I was experiencing through the boxing. And I joined a meditation group in London and then I kept that up for a long time uh, and then it wasn't until 2008 that I attended my first proper retreat, and <laughs> that was under a bit of duress because that was during or just after the global financial crisis, which I'd just started my brief uh, business one year previously. So I had decided to go down and and, and attend a retreat for ten days, uh, doing vipassana meditation just north of Brisbane here, and. Uh, one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, but also one of the most rewarding uh, things I've ever done in my life. And then I kept that practice up for quite some time and then it fell away a little and then uh, when my business, when the when the mining business uh, started to fail in 2012 due to the downturn, I sent myself packing off there again. And uh, once again, um, absolutely loved it and uh, got a lot out of it and it's certainly
0: What's so difficult about the Vipassana? What do you find the hardest thing? Well, you're meditating
1: 12 hours a day for 10 days straight. So if you've ever tried to sit in a room and deal with yourself only for 12 hours a day for 10 days, it's quite a difficult task. So you can't hide from yourself in that. Uh, Part of the Vipassana is to, you're not allowed to look at anyone, you're not allowed to talk to anyone, and you're not allowed to gesture to anyone. So you're to completely isolate yourself from anybody else who's attending the meditation and sit with yourself for 12 hours a day and deal with whatever comes up. And in that amount of time, 120 odd hours, a lot comes up.
0: (laughs) It's interesting though, here's the box of the Australian champion yet the the meditation subject at the same time. Is it a clash of cultures? No, I actually...
1: uh, I actually got to understood that boxing was a was a vehicle um that i used i guess to express you know you're a young man you've, you you want to be someone and you want to be something and and uh you want to be like your father uh there's a lot of things there culturally that that I used boxing to express that through um and one of the funniest things that I realised was that I probably spent 20 years turning myself into something that I wasn't really at my core. Um, and then I've spent the next 20 years undoing that. And, and, and like I've always said, there's an absolutely zero regret for boxing there because it taught me a lot. But what I realised at a point of time after that 1998 period was, you know, um, who am I? How do I, How do I? Who do I want to be for the rest of my life? Besides a boxer, because I'm not that anymore. Um, and I really just wanted to learn to do things better, and be calmer, and be happier, and and not to need to persistently drive myself to do something, to feel like I was worth something. And so, I. But I also loved that that strict requirement for discipline, which is why I love business. It's not actually about the money. It's, it's about being able to strictly stick to your game plan for a long period of time, regardless of the adversary um, that, that, that comes against you.
0: Building up the business, you started out, you got your apprenticeship, didn't turn professional. Talk us through that process. Yeah, so I decided to obviously finish my trade and,
1: and then go traveling and, and continue on my education. So part of that travel was the the, the good thing about my trade is that it, it, you, diesel fitters and mining are required all over the world. So it was an easy step for me to go to the other side of the country and pick up a job and do some travelling, which is what I wanted to do. And I, I love Australia. I love everything Australia had to offer. So I was one of those people who wanted to travel Australia first before I did overseas travel. And so I spent you know, quite a few years doing that. I lived in Western Australia for almost... Um, almost five years I think so maybe six before I went overseas and you know I just absolutely loved it I love the bush I love being in the desert um, I love traveling around in those remote places because that that feeling of remoteness is just what I love what did that teach you that was interesting because I didn't realize at times how isolated I felt um So you're in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere and you're surrounded by people that you don't know really that well. Um, So over the long term, you realise that um, you have to learn how to deal with that isolation on its own. And then I put myself on some of those breaks, even further isolated. So it was one of those, I guess, mental challenges that I set myself. How isolated could I get and still deal with it well? You know, and so that was a learning curve on its own, just to learn how to to deal with isolating yourself even further and further, like pushing those boundaries.
0: Is it a form of meditation? To
1: a certain extent, um, if you love nature like I love it, and love being out there in the bush, and I can remember doing a motorbike trip by myself, five and a half thousand kilometres through the Western Australian desert, and. Waking up days there by myself in the middle of the desert, looking at um, the Hammersley Ranges or Monkey Mire or Coral Bay, these little beautiful outpockets When back in the 90s, which were very, very quiet and just being in absolute bliss, like meditation.
0: So it was a form of meditation. You went inside... Absolutely. You went outside, but you went inside. Absolutely. Yeah. It was that connection to nature. So you started to build your business. How did that all come about?
1: Yeah. And I went to England for a couple of years and then I came home and then I worked as a contractor as I always have um, in mining. And I've never, it, it had been a long time since I really enjoyed my trade. so. I was looking for something else and at that time um, that something else appeared to be going into business for myself as my father had been for my whole life and and having that challenge. So the challenge for me was can I build a business, can I sustain my family or my future family on it at that time? Um, so that was like another natural progression into one of those challenges, you know? And uh, yeah, be careful what you ask for, I say.
0: <laughs> so, so where did we get to?
1: Well... In, in, by 2012, I had nearly 30 people working for me and I had a workshop in uh, Mackay. I'd made it through a, a GFC. Um, so that was a really interesting time and the meditation and, and all that played a big part in that. Um, so that's where I brought that business to before that, that next slowdown period. So what happened then? Uh, mining slowed down significantly and I went from about 28 guys, I think it was, down to about four guys in a very short period of time and what I was left with was a lot of infrastructure and a lot of equipment debt um, that I had to pay for. So it was a very uh, difficult time for me and uh, over the next 12 months to two years we we pretty much almost went bankrupt and uh, to the point where I I told my wife that we were probably going to have to lose the house know so that's a for a for a man and a father that's a that's a difficult thing t- to have to do
0: yeah what was her reaction
1: oh you know she was very upset and um but you know she stuck by me we stuck together we've been through a lot of ups and downs and as every relationship does but we've always stayed together and we've always uh, supported each other through those times and when you've got a supportive wife and, and a couple of young kids, you sort of have to reframe um, how you think about your life and and think about what's important. And so my driver and what kept me afloat at that time was, okay, I've got a roof over our heads, the kids are fed. Well, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but even if I have to rent, right? So the the the, the thought process for me was, okay, well, you know, we're going to survive. We're going to get through this and in, in world standards, we're not in poverty. You know, 90% of the population out there in the world lives in poverty. In if we're in the Western world in Australia, we're not living in poverty. So it's not as bad as, as I'm making it out to be in my head, even though it feels like it at the moment. And that was how I got through that.
0: So where did you go to from there as things are looking pretty bleak.
1: Yeah, it allowed me to take my blinkers off and and uh, and then I ended up uh, using infrared technology quite by accident actually. How did you get into that? So my I was building a house at the time in 2012 and um, things had just started to slow down dr- dramatically at the end of that year. And there were some problems with the structure of the house and I wanted to know how I was gonna figure that out. And it was a core filled block house. I was a bricklayer's son so I grew up um, on building sites so I knew exactly what it should have been but it didn't appear that it was. The only problem was you can't see into walls, right? Uh, but I remembered the infrared camera salesman who lived locally telling me about its, its ability to determine different levels of insulation in a building through the ser- thermal pattern that you could observe from the outside. So I, And he, he'd been talking to me a lot about bringing that into my business in the earth moving, but I had my blinkers on so I sort of always dismissed it. And um, so what I did was I rang him and said, do you think you could help me out here, just see which blocks are core filled and which aren't? And he said, yeah. And he came around, and with limited knowledge, to me it looked like x-ray. And uh, that's when the penny dropped. And I realized, wow, this, you know, this technology can see everything that I can't see, and I really need, I've got, what have I got to lose, right? <laughs> I'm going broke. So this could be a, a fantastic new avenue. So, so I, how uh, did
0: you want to apply it? What, uh, what was your thinking at this stage?
1: I, um, of My main you know, uh, time as a diesel fuel was spent as uh, working on bulldozers and diggers and, and trucks. Okay? So uh, a lot of the things that fail on those um, components get hot first. So it sort of made sense to me that the earlier you could identify uh, those failings in a temperature modality, the earlier you could do something about it and fix them. So if this technology was as good as I thought it was, and you know this camera was forty thousand dollars on its own, then I bought a lens worth th- uh, fifteen thousand, and then I bought a laptop, and a course, you know, so sixty thousand dollars was the, was the gamble. But if it could do what I thought it would do, then that would be doing something that nobody was doing that I knew of, you know, in that in that time. Um, The difficulty was when I did my research is that I realised that there were very few, well, there was no standards for that equipment. And, you know, I paid for webinars and did all sorts of things and the the, the information I was getting was quite rudimentary. So I realised that there was really no depth in what a lot of people were doing. A lot of people were saying they were doing these things, but there was no depth in what they were saying. So I saw that as an opportunity, but I didn't realise how difficult that was going to be to be able to bring that, opportunity to life
0: does it say a lot about you the fact that you're about to lose your house and you went and you spent 60,000 on equipment that you really didn't know (laughs) what it was all about
1: yeah I guess what it says you know some people would argue it's I'm stupid um and I'm and I'm sure a lot of people did at the time and I totally understand why um but I believed in I believe in myself and I believe that I'm not stupid, and I believe that I have an eye for opportunity, and that's basically what drove me, um, because a lot of people around me, when I, when I bought it up, were sort of like shaking their heads and having blank looks, but to me it made t- total sense, so I decided to go for it.
0: And what happened after that?
1: Yeah, that year, uh, I bought that camera in early 2013, and I did my first Cat One course, so I knew what I was talking about, but it was also about being certified, uh, about, you know, knowing what I was talking about. Um, and then I went out into the world of mining. I had a lot of contacts who would let me onto their site, and I'd budgeted for six months. That's pretty much all we had um, to get this off the ground. So out I went to all these mine sites, and and, and I've said this to a lot of people, is, is that it was the best year of my life and the worst year of my life. Uh, it was the worst year of my life because I only got paid once for that whole year. I think the job was only about between five and ten thousand dollars. So certainly not enough to sustain everything. Um, and we were, you know, we were going broke. So that was the bad part of it. But the good part of it was, was that nobody was paying me to do this. So nobody really cared whether I got good results or not. Um, and what I did was, it gave me the opportunity to do everything very slowly, and really take my time to understand. Um, what was happening, why it was happening, how quick it was happening, what temperature it started to happen at, what temperature it failed at, what all of those curves looked like, which it appears that no one's actually done uh, anywhere. So in hindsight, looking back, that was the best year of my life because I developed a system um, that related to most pieces of mining equipment um, and
0: it became very solid. So once you started to put that into practice, what was the uh, reaction from the mining industry?
1: Yeah, so I guess in at the end of 2013, when I you know really wasn't having a lot of success securing any, anything, I had a lot, a lot of people on site who I was working, who I was doing the freebies for, who were really receptive, but weren't willing to pay me for it. Why um, not? Well, I was being told that they had no money to spend. They weren't allowed to spend any money. And so, you know, it was a difficult pill to swallow. And I remember, you know, specifically in 2014, sitting in my office with this, you know, 55 dollars to $60,000 worth of equipment and saying, I can't believe how, how wrong I've got it. I can't believe that they can't see how much I can save them. Um, you know, and with the help of a friend, I actually put together an email that detailed some of those savings to some of those major clients, um, and I ended up with two contracts out of it. So, what I learned out of that was um, people, when 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 their uh, business that they're running is struggling, they they don't have the time to work out those things like what you've saved them. So you've got to do that work for them and say, you know, this is what the potential savings are. Imagine if we if we did this on a regular basis and you know, And that's what led to those two contracts. And, and of course, the people who are signing the, the purchase orders have to be open-minded. They have to be what's called early adopters in industry. They have to be those type of people who will go, oh, I can see what he's saying and we're going to try that. And it actually takes a lot of courage to do that when you're in the middle of a downturn. So I'm forever grateful to those people.
0: How much study did you need to do to get yourself to a stage where you could actually... Uh give the data to people in a, uh, in a way that would be saving them money?
1: Well, I guess from, two th- from March to 2013, I finished my course at the end of March 2013, until February 2014, so that's almost full 12 months, and I didn't rest much in that period. So what I did was I took whatever, I studied all of the ISO standards And I took whatever other standards were out there and I started with that. And then I worked my way backwards. So there was a significant amount of work in doing that because I didn't know what I was doing. And I had some great mentors along the way and I'm forever grateful to them, like Eric Thorup and and Wayne Ruddock, because they were the type of people who had the experience, not necessarily in my trade, but they had a lot of thermography experience and I could either call them or email them and send them an image and say, this is the problem I have. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I think it's this, and they would they would guide me along. Are you a
0: groundbreaker by applying it to the mining industry? Uh,
1: the technology itself has been involved in the mining industry for a long time. Um, I am a groundbreaker in the in the point that I believe I'm a groundbreaker in the point that the system that I've built. So it's not just the technology. Um, There's there's actually three parts to being successful in that area. One is good technology, and most people are too cheap to buy good technology. Two is to do the training, right? But the third part is, is to develop a system. So you can buy good technology and you can get good training, but if you don't have a system that's repeatable, then you won't get repeatable results. In what way? If you if I was to look at you as a as a um human being in an infrared camera and we perceived part of your musculature as hot, what would be the question you'd ask me? You'd ask me, Well, how hot is it? And how bad is
0: that? No, I'd just say, How hot am I? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right? So you'd want to know.
1: You'd want to know, um, is that bad or good? And how would we determine whether that's bad or good? Well, we'd have to look at a whole heap of other people, wouldn't we? But the but the big thing is that we'd have to make that process repeatable, and we'd have to make that process um, so procedural that we know that you are actually hot or no. Compared to everyone else, actually, it's not too bad. You know what I mean? So the same thing is with machinery. We need to we need to look at a whole lot of machines in a whole range of environments, and then take all of the data and correlate that and make sure that it's repeatable, then that's where you need a system. Because that data can be manipulated. Absolutely. Everything can be manipulated to how you want it. How can that happen? Uh, Right from the imaging process, there's controls in the camera that allow you to manipulate the image. And you can make anything look hot and anything look cold. And this is part of the problem with tomography, is because people take that. simple control, and then try to sell either their service or the camera by manipulating an object within an image to make it look bad or to make it look good. And that's where part of the problem has been. How do so, they do that? So they, they adjust something called the span, and the span is we have an upper and lower temperature level and we basically tell the camera we want to see between these two temperatures, okay? The energy that's relevant to these two temperatures. And so if I wanted to make you look hot, I'd bring the top span down to 35 degrees, and that would mean your whole body would look hot. And intuitively, our brain looks at that image and then looks at the little color bar on the side and says, yeah, that's hot, when in fact you might be completely normal. If I take that top span up and then move the whole lot up and the bottom up, I can make you look totally cold. I can make you look like you're dead in comparison to somebody else, okay? So that's how they manipulate the image. So. In, in thermography, you need a good image, then you need to extrapolate the data from that image, which is what I spent a lot of time doing. And then you need the ability to trend that data and, and trace that over time, which is what I did for seven years. So we've, we have seven years of data. We have seven years of images. We have seven years of reports on every machine. And we have all of these actions that help remedy
0: that, those problems. And that's what's made the difference. It's something that's starting to grow. You're starting to teach it these days?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned Wayne Ruck, who I met in 2014. And Wayne's been teaching infrared since 1980. So he's well known. He's taught NASA, the US Air Force, the US Army, Coast Guard, et cetera, et cetera. He teaches in Mexico a lot at um, manufacturing plants. And I met him in Australia in 2014. He came to Australia once a year to teach classes. And he was always highly regarded in the thermography world. and uh, When I met him was actually after one of my first ever presentations and uh, if anyone knows Wayne, he's very upfront and direct, kind of like my father. So I'd made this presentation to a national thermography conference, having only really been involved in the game for a year and a half and he confronted me after the presentation and started firing a lot of technical questions at me and I was struggling to keep up. And one of the answers I gave him was a little bit too generalised and he said to me, well, son, if you're not doing that properly, you're just another idiot with a camera.
0: And then I because there's a lot of people that float around with a um, with a camera and think that they're uh, well, if they they might have an iPhone and they say they're a
1: photographer. Absolutely, that's right. And and that's the analogy I I use. I know a lot of professional demographers and and look at yourself. You're in media, and I say to them, okay, so imagine getting a little digital, uh, a little um, disposable camera, and then saying to you, mate. Don't worry about paying for that professional photographer at your wedding, I'll take the photos. You'd get laughed out, wouldn't you? But in the thermography world, that's what people actually do. They get the little iPhone with the th- infrared camera on it or they buy a, a $1,000 or $2,000 camera and they say, I'm a thermographer. A, they don't know how to drive it and B, the image is that pixelated that you lose that much information. So it's, it's the same thing, right?
0: Where do you go to from here, your teaching? around Australia and also now starting to take it overseas yeah so in as part of the uh, the
1: process with Wayne in 2016 he said look I'm getting too old to travel over here all the time and I'm, you're probably not going to see me too often and I said to him um, so who's going to do your courses over here and I wasn't thinking about taking him over because I was actually a bit scared of him because he's very he, he's very knowledgeable you know and I, I don't think I could fill those boots and I still don't Um, but at the time I asked him he said oh no one's going to do that because I haven't had anyone express any interest and I went away and I thought about it for a while and I thought I'd really like to try that but I'm just not confident enough you know to um to be able to do it so you know and now whenever through my experiences in the last 20 years now whenever a period of self-doubt creeps in that's a key indicator for me to stand up and face it and confront and break it down as to why I don't think I'm good enough to do it. So I went through that process with myself and it was purely fear of failure and then I went through the process of the reasons why I could do it and they certainly outweighed the reasons why I couldn't do it. So I contacted him by email and said I don't suppose you would think I could be good enough to teach your courses and he didn't miss a beat, absolutely, um, I'm going to need to train you a little bit more but if you're willing to spend the money to come and train with me, I think it's going to be a perfect fit. And so we taught our first course together at the Royal Australian Navy Base in uh, Sydney in 2017, and then I flew to Canada later that year and spent two weeks with him up in his mountain um, log cabin, which was converted upstairs into accommodation and, and down the bottom as a teaching room. You can imagine this immaculate proper log cabin up in the Canadian mountains overlooking a lake, it was spectacular. But I was also sitting with one of the best people in the world in my uh, my desired discipline, and I got that one-on-one with him for two weeks and it was absolutely outstanding.
0: Was it the right place at the right time?
1: Absolutely, you know, nothing's a coincidence. And it's like the old saying, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And I've been very conscious about um, about that. And the same thing occurred with Ken Ware, right? You know, if you're awake and open and watching what's around you, you're going to see those opportunities and, and these things arise. And once again, most of the time, it's our own self-doubt that, that stops us from stepping up and saying, hey, I want to try this. And so that was certainly the case with Wayne. And, um, you know, we've enjoyed a great business um, a business partnership together since then, where I teach his courses and and I teach them in Australia, New Zealand. I've been to Papua New Guinea. I've taught online courses now because of COVID, and we've had people from South America dial in. So it's been a tremendous amount of enjoyment for me, and and I feel like it's a
0: um, it's an it's an achievement for me. When did you decide to turn the the uh, infrared camera back on yourself as part of the neurophysics with Ken?
1: When In 2013, when I was uh, first involved with Ken, um, it was quite a funny period because I was going broke. He lived in a mining area in Emerald, so it was kind of a good excuse for me to go out there when really I just wanted to be out there with him and learn. Um, But I was still promoting the thermography business and visiting mine sites on the way past or or whatever. And I'll never forget um, he had former... World Hawaiian Ironman champion Peter Jacobs in for some treatment, and um, I was filming him in um, infrared while he was being treated, and the amount of thermal energy that dissipated from his trapeze um, in an eight-minute period was astounding for me. And I'd already looked at a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. I'd I'd um, looked at myself um, training. So I set up the camera on a tripod and started to record myself training just to watch what happened to my body as it heated up during a training process. And this was all in, in, in the looking at, at it through overtraining. So I wanted to understand what actually happens physiologically and thermally uh, during overtraining. And I went on in 2014 and 15 to write a few case studies about that which was really interesting. Um, but that was all a result of what happened on that day and I'll never forget that day as long as I live because the camera doesn't lie. It's a a highly tuned scientific instrument and it's very accurate. And thermal energy just doesn't disappear and it certainly doesn't distribute itself in a human being. Um, So from that point on, the penny had dropped for
0: both myself
1: and for Ken that this could be an extremely valuable tool.
0: So how has the medical fraternity taken on this sort of treatment
1: the treatment with neurophysics as well as the infrared or each and oath. yep. so if you look at neurophysics on its own i guess it's kind of like my story with the um with the thermography and the mining industry it's been quite slow and remember ken's been at this for now 40 years nearly so he's one of my inspirations for uh for persistence (laughs) he he's been in the same boat but for much longer where he knew his system worked and he was persistent enough to get it. And now he chairs um, the International uh, Brain Disorder and Neurology Conference yearly, or, or he's part of the executive, you know. and So as far as um, non-surgical interventions in neurology, he's recognized in science as, as being, you know, some of the best in the world.
0: Because he's had a lot of success. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, he's uh, John McLean is a great story. Um, in 2014, I think that was where John hadn't walked for properly for 25 years unassisted, and then within three days of Ken's therapy, he was taking his first steps in in 25 years. Um, I've you know personally seen so many spinal cord injury patients improving or standing on their own and and moving along their way. Brain injury patients, you know, so it certainly is an outstanding um, therapy and. It is taking time to be recognised, but it will, just like all good things.
0: Is it something that you retain your passion for and want to be doing for the next, say, 20 years? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm
1: nearly at the end of my studies, and I've been very slow. Um, and I'm forever grateful for Ken and his wife uh, Nikki and and the the tutors at Neurophysics, um, because. I guess at at my core, I love helping people and I I can't think of a better way to do it. And the beautiful thing as it turned out is that I get to combine two passions, which is helping people and thermography. So what I'm looking forward to in the future is having my own rehabilitation centre, but bringing this infrared technology in and partnering up with um, some scientists like I have in the last five years. So there's been a lot of small wins in the science world with what we do. And I'm really looking forward to bringing that to fruition because I've been the hold-up because of the amount of time and energy I have.
0: You've been a a fairly successful amateur boxer. You've delved into the thermography, both in the mining industry and also the neurophysics. What would you consider your greatest achievement? (laughs) Yeah. Being a dad. How's that? How's that?
1: (sighs) You know, those little people are... um, yeah, they're just the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me, you know. They, um, a, I've got my favourite coffee cup and it's just world's greatest dad. That's the proudest, that's the best trophy I've ever given, been given. And, it, and it, um, I don't think anyone could give me a better trophy, you know. So that's how strongly I feel about, um, about my achievement of being a dad. Yeah, so it's fantastic. What's the biggest thing that, that your kids have taught you? Through all the, you know, obviously my kids were, were, through were there through all of those tough times, and and um, that type of unconditional love that you get to come home to every day is is what makes everything okay, you know. And um, I I, I when I stepped out of my own road there after two thousand and thirteen and fourteen, as I went through my process, I looked at them and realised how much joy they saw in life in the little things, you know. Um, they. The way they embrace life and the way they look at new things um, is amazing. And I feel that we, you know, we lose that as we get older and everything becomes kind of, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen it all before. Well, you haven't really. You just haven't seen, you've seen something like it, but not something the same. And, you know, my son, I tell this story a lot when I watch him go to school in the mornings and if I get to drop him off, he goes to school with the same group of kids every day but every day he runs over to them and hugs them like he hasn't seen him in two weeks, not that he saw him yesterday at school. And to me that is what you learn from a child, how to be that joyous and how to love your friends and, and your family around you, you know? Um, so I uh, I try and embrace that and try and enjoy that life and you know, like we do when we, when we meet each other, we give each other a big hug. And I do that with a lot of my good friends because I think that it's just the most amazing thing you can do is, is uh, say good day to your mate and give him a good hug, you know? And that's what I've learnt from my children. That's they're, they're the most amazing teachers ever.
0: And a great way to wrap things up. Jeff Erickson, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks for having me, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical. Merrymark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with MerryMark Medical. Contact Merrymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specializes in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery or craft foam, or even loose-filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. And they'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, and they've also got anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. And if they don't have it, Andrew will get it for you. Plus, for over the bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount, and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. Only for over the bonnet listeners when you mention the show, and you have to ask for your discount. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving, that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big. Their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 Dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20 tonne, an 8 tonne, and a 2.5 tonne. Plus, they provide side truck hire and have a roller and even a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAT Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and I guarantee the Earth will move for you.